Great, good morning. Everyone got a seat. Delighted to see you. Always delighted to see a full house, but uh, I caught snippets of conversation this morning of no trains and planes stuck on the tarmac, entirely relevant to the conversation we're, we're about to have. Good morning, I'm Bronwyn Maddox, I'm Director of the Institute for Government. And um, I'm really delighted to be having this, uh, this event this morning, which not only marks the launch of our sixth in infrastructure report in a year, the one, uh, I'm gonna wave it at you, how to transform uh, infrastructure decision-making in the UK, um, but is really the culmination of about a year's work for the Institute, led by Nick Davies with Graham Atkins, Tess Kidney-Bishop and Daniel Slade, terrific team. And I was discussing um, with Lillian Greenwood MP, who's joined us very kindly uh, to discuss it. Uh, I was discussing before we came up here why we'd done this. I started at the Institute not quite a year and a half ago, and this was one of the things I really wanted us to work on, because there is so much um, uh, proper discussion about why the country keeps being presented with a choice between something big, expensive and late or nothing at all. And I thought we ought to uh, dig into the process of this. And indeed the, t the team has done that, looking at the process, at cost-benefit analysis, at the financing and all kinds of aspects of the uh, decision making about how we can end up with better infrastructure uh, decisions and not with, not with white elephants and not with nothing at all. Um, so how this morning is going to work, Nick Davis is going to talk for about 10 minutes and set out uh, this latest report. I'm going to discuss it with uh, Lillian Greenwood. Lillian, as you know, is in the MP for Nottingham South since 2010 and is also chair of the Transport Select Committee. Really delighted to have you with us. Thank you. But first I'm going to hand over to um, Milagros Mostaza from the Project Management Institute. And we're delighted to have had the Project Management Institute as partners throughout this piece of work, injecting a lot of uh, thought and dialogue. And uh, would you like to say a few words about why this, um, I would come up here, in fact, and speak um, about why this so work much. has been good for you. Thank you. Um, and thank you for having the opportunity to have um, collaborated with you in this report. Uh, project Management Institute is the leading project management association in the world and we support worldwide more than a million members and certification holders. Uh, and our mission is really promote the use of project management as a strategic competency. Therefore, when we talk about infrastructure, of course, it's very, very relevant and, and that's why we are very pleased to contribute um, to these kind of reports, but also to, to the discussions that are taking place here in the UK uh, and in other parts of the world. Actually, with our research and thought leadership, we try to contribute to the thinking process that uh, countries are having um, everywhere, really. I mean, each country has different challenges, but uh, we, we want to contribute to share those experiences. We collaborate as well uh, with the World Economic Forum, specifically on infrastructure discussions. So we will be very pleased to, to share as well the work we're doing with them and the experiences that other governments are, are having in other parts of the world. So with that, again, thank you so much, and um, look forward to the presentation, and I'm sure it's going to be very useful for everybody. Thank you very much. Great. And then with that, Nick, we want to take it away. Good morning, uh, and thank you for coming to the launch of this, as Bronwyn said, the sixth report that we've published as part of a year-long investigation into infrastructure policymaking. The report pulls together and synthesises the findings from across this work to make final recommendations on how government can make the right decisions about critical infrastructure sectors such as transport, energy, flood defences, water and waste. I'm going to focus on three key issues today, though of course there's substantially more detail in the report, a summary of which you have in front of you. Um, so first, the importance of taking a long-term approach to infrastructure policymaking. Uh, second, making the right finance choices and getting a good deal. And third, engaging the public. So starting with taking a long-term approach to infrastructure policymaking. Infrastructure decisions by successive governments have been inconsistent and subject to constant change. This is to an extent an inevitable consequence of our democratic system and it would not be possible nor desirable to take the politics out of infrastructure. Yet to be effective, infrastructure policy must be long term and provide certainty for industry, investors and the public. And squaring this circle is a, a key challenge. 
The starting point must be a widely agreed evidence base on what the country's infrastructure needs actually are. And the National Infrastructure Commission was established to do just that and has made a very positive start. But its success is far from assured. Its longevity and its impact will depend on its credibility across party lines, uh, and that, that requires work. Most importantly, its independence must be assured. While it has acted independently to date, this has been largely due to its leadership rather than its organisational form as an executive agency of the Treasury. Like other independent bodies that provide advice such as the OBR or the Committee on Climate Change, we think it should be established as a non-departmental public body so it's got greater independence. Equally, given the sensitivity of infrastructure investment decisions, it must be seen to represent a range of views. While the current commissioners are all uh, respected experts in their fields, uh, they're all also somewhat London-centric and are quite heavily weighted uh, towards economists. Um, there are currently a, a number of spare commissioner slots uh, and the Chancellor should prioritise injecting a, a bit of diversity when making further appointments. The first proper test of the NIC's effectiveness will be the response to the publication of the first National Infrastructure Assessment, which is due this summer, particularly the response from the government. The government, we think, should use the National Infrastructure Assessment as the basis for a cross-cutting national infrastructure strategy, and that this should be a key tool for coordinating infrastructure policy and projects across Whitehall and different levels of government. Within central government alone, as this chart shows, there are eight departments and 26 ministers with official responsibility for infrastructure policy. Uh, below this, there are combined authorities, local authorities, LEPs, and from April, subnational transport bodies, all of which have infrastructure roles. This requires coordination that is currently lacking. Even where there are supposed national strategies, these tend to actually be long shopping lists of policies, but provide little sense of how they're meant to fit together. There needs to be a clear framework for prioritising projects and coordinating the work of the numerous arms of government. This is particularly important for large national projects such as HS2, where realising all the potential benefits depends on a wide number of central and local government bodies working together. So the National Infrastructure Strategy, we think, should do three things in particular. One, it must clearly explain how accepted recommendations from the National Infrastructure Assessment interact with existing plans such as the industrial strategy and national policy statements to achieve government's infrastructure objectives. Two, it should set out how the capacity of sub-national bodies such as combined authorities and sub-national transport bodies will be developed and the formal arrangements by which central government uh, will work with them and that could be modelled for example on the arrangements that have been set out for working with Transport for the North. And three, it needs to be explicit about the extent to which different parts of the country will benefit from investment decisions. Uh, the question of investment decisions brings me on to the second overall point that I'd like to make. The importance of getting a good deal on finance, i.e. the money that's used to meet the upfront costs of infrastructure. The UK needs greater investment in infrastructure, but at the moment, as Bronwyn said, it often ends up costing us more than it should. There are various reasons for this, but two finance-related ones are critical. The bias towards private finance and ineffective negotiation and management of private finance contracts. Both of these are particularly relevant in light of Carillion's collapse, which seemingly was partly due to losses on private finance deals. So let's start with the bias towards private finance. The government system of accounting, appraisal and budgeting we have found has created perverse incentives to use private finance, even where it doesn't represent long-term value for money. And as a result, we have more off-balance sheet public-private partnerships than any other leading EU country. And I'd like to highlight four recommendations that we've made for overcoming this. First, government must be much more transparent, publishing comparisons between different finance options for individual projects and the impact of private finance projects using wider measures of public sector debt, which show PFI and PF2 liabilities. Second, government must get much better at collecting, collating and analysing data on private finance deals. 
One of the big problems with this debate is we have so little evidence about the whole life costs of private versus publicly financed projects. Third, Treasury budgeting processes should leave fiscal headroom for projects which emerge outside of the spending review cycle to prevent departments defaulting to private finance. And fourth, although there has been significant progress um, in improving the government's commercial skills, there's more work to be done. In particular, there remains a lack of awareness of the commercial and finance specialisms among departmental leadership teams. Even where private finance could provide better value for money, the government is not doing enough to realise these benefits, and it's certainly not doing enough to meet its stated objective of increasing the volume of private investment in UK infrastructure. Most pressingly, the absence of a clear pipeline of projects creates investor uncertainty, reduces the number of potential investors, reducing competition for contracts, eroding investor confidence in government, and leading ultimately to higher costs for taxpayers and consumers. A new PF2 pipeline was promised by the Chancellor in the 2016 autumn statement, but is yet to arrive. If government's serious about getting more private investment at a good price, then this must be published ASAP. The third overall point I'd like to make is about engaging the public. Too often in the UK, the government's approach has been to streamline consultation processes. But if communities do not feel they've had a genuine say on projects, then they often oppose them entirely, resulting in delays which can cost millions of pounds. Yet the evidence from the UK and abroad shows that taking a more structured approach to conflict resolution can be beneficial for government and communities alike. In our report, we cite the example of France's National Commission for Public Debate, which, despite having no formal powers to enforce its recommendations, has provided a route through which communities can have their say and make a meaningful difference to major infrastructure projects. So as shown on here, the two green bars are where significant changes have been made to projects in France as a result of the CNDB consultation process. So we propose uh, creating a similar independent body here, uh, a commission for public engagement that we think should do three things. One, facilitate in-depth deliberations with representative, randomly selected panels of citizens which would discuss policy options for inclusion in the government's national infrastructure strategy. Two, uh, when national policy statements are developed or updated, uh, this body could facilitate public debates with local communities that are likely to be affected by the resulting major infrastructure projects. And three, it could provide advice to project sponsors during the pre-application consultation stage of the nationally significant infrastructure project planning regime. Such a body could be established cheaply and without disruption to the existing major project planning process, giving communities a real say, providing greater certainty to government and other scheme promoters, and reducing delays that can run to hundreds of millions of pounds. None of this is to say that these decisions are easy. Investment in infrastructure raises fundamental political questions, and the projects themselves can be hugely complex. But while government has made improvements, there's much more that could be done. Today's report and the previous five, which look in detail at issues such as the use of cost-benefit analysis, public versus private finance, and the politics of infrastructure decision-making, provide some practical recommendations on the further recommendations that could be made. Thank you. Nick, many thanks indeed, and uh, lots I'm sure we'll pick up in questions from... Uh, the superiority of one form of finance over another or not um, to various ways of making decisions. I want to start with one thing, though, the National Infrastructure Commission. Uh, it was set up precisely to help this kind of thing. How do you, how do you think it's worked? Um, I mean, I think it's incredibly uh, welcome uh, development. Um, I spent a lot of time in the last parliament kind of uh, discussion meetings like this where we were talking about if only we had uh, a sort of long-term strategy for the development uh, of infrastructure that tried to take uh, some of the politics out of 
uh, these decisions. So I think um, the, the very fact of us having a National Infrastructure Commission in place now to, to try and do that, to try and look beyond the normal uh, sort of political uh, cycles of decision making is really uh, helpful. But I don't think its future is yet assured. We, we've still got to see whether the process is going to properly work for us in terms of um, is it going to have that independence? Are government going to uh, listen and respond appropriately when we get that National Infrastructure Assessment uh, this year? Um, so I'm optimistic but cautious, I think it's probably the mm. right word. It's lost two heads, uh, Andrew Adonis and, and Michael Heseltine, not over infrastructure related mm. uh, reasons it seems to me, uh, over Brexit related uh, and other, uh, other, other disagreements. Um, what do you think is the, the strongest thing it's done so far? Um, I mean, I think ju just the very fact of it being there and identifying what mm. the uh, challenges are and being able to kind of speak about those and communicate those uh, to the wider public. So sort of that gaining that understanding that it is about congestion, it's about capacity, it's about the digital future. I think it gives people a very clear view about what are the things that our country uh, needs to do. And it, and it also demonstrates the importance uh, that we attach to uh, infrastructure and to infrastructure uh, planning. I think um, the fact that it's lost to very uh, clear uh, and um, outspoken uh, chairs is, is a worry because you know, we, we need to have someone with uh, independence and with uh, the real sort of authority and clout to drive it, its work forward. So uh, I think that's why, what will be making people a little anxious. Nick was talking about the need for consensus. You're, you're chair of the Transport Select Committee. We're not um, meeting at a time of great um, cross-party sort of harmony at the moment. But what do you think the appetite is for uh, cross-party uh, agreement on these kind of things? Um, I mean, I think we all recognise that um, that when you can't achieve political consensus, when things become a political football, uh, it does hold us back. And at the moment, uh, one of the pieces of work that we're doing in the Select Committee is, of course, scrutinising the airport's uh, national uh, policy statement. And I feel, uh, as a committee, we've very much kind of left the politics um, uh, behind in terms of trying to do our scrutiny uh, role. And when you look at the, the sort of history of trying to agree um, around airports expansion, I think it's yeah. a really good example of when of why things don't work and about how politics uh, gets in the way. You know, I mean, we, the, the, the idea of uh, a third runway at Heathrow, of Heathrow expansion was first mooted back in uh, the 1940s. It was seriously on the table from 2000. Uh, and three, and we've seen how it's been delayed just in the last couple uh, yeah. of decades. It was, it became a, a political issue, a party political issue within the 2010 uh, election. Um, it was then, you know, the, the incoming government decided to try and take the politics out of it by setting up the airports commission. But obviously, nervous of the politics, kicked that decision to, you know, made sure the airports commission wasn't going to report <coughs> until after the 2015 election. Yeah. Then there was a further delay down to the well, it seemed pretty clear, down to the fact of the, the London mayoral election. I think it's a really good example of when politics and making a decision on something that's clearly um, really important is addressing that capacity issue within mm. the aviation market. Mm. And I would argue, this, this isn't going to be a, a debate simply about Heathrow and airports, but mm. argue that, sure. that the, the question of costs, it, 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 it got lost in the politics, I mean, the, the particularly high costs of, um, of, of the current Heathrow proposition. That is, that is a subject for another debate. And so just, just, just finally in this, I mean, Nick uh, making the pitch for a commission for public engagement. Do you think that would help, again, take some of the politics out of this, bring the public into these decisions? I mean, I think that's one of the really interesting parts uh, of the report, because even where we have made uh, big infrastructure uh, decisions. So I think some things have moved on. So in terms of HS2, which is something I've kind of been uh, on the on the edges of as a, a sort of shadow transport minister uh, in the last parliament, is that politicians finally made a decision. But I'm not convinced that they've ever that the the argument with the public has necessarily uh, been won. Both in terms of the broader public, because one of the the points I think you make is that uh, decisions can be held up by the mm. concentrated uh, losers. Mm. It's almost like we've made that decision. Obviously, there have been some important changes made to the scheme to uh, try to reflect the concerns of those other, uh, other losers. But I don't, I'm not sure that we've really won uh, the argument about the wider benefits with the public mm. 
who are, stand to, to gain from the kind of rebalancing the economy and changing the national uh, connectivity. So it's been one with sort of city leaders or it's been one with business, but not with the uh, wider public. And I think that's really important because people need to understand, particularly where we're spending you know, large amounts uh, of public money, they need mm. to understand and value it. Mm. And I think perhaps you know, Crossrail, uh, an example of where I feel like there is an understanding and a pride <coughs> uh, in that investment mm. that's that's happening but I'm not sure we're there on uh, on other areas and I think that mm. the suggestion uh, is a really welcome one it'd be really interesting mm. uh, to see how that develops well, we'll explore that in the future Nick, uh, the word Carillion hangs over a lot of discussions of um, you know public versus private at the moment and that is obviously an enormous debate which uh, spans the regulated utilities uh, right through to outsourcing of services and so on uh, and, and the PFI uh, questions just just one subsector of that. So um, I don't want to try and encompass all that, but you just take us through, um, in particular, uh, the, the data that would allow us to say um, with more confidence what works and what doesn't work. Obviously, you know, private finance brings in uh, private money into uh, infrastructure building um, and in theory allows more infrastructure than the government might otherwise be able to do uh, but the question is at what cost so what, what is it we would really like to know in order to be able to assess whether it is better value for money well, i think as i said in my presentation at the moment the debate around the use of pfi pf2 and private finance generally is a bit of a, an evidence-free zone unfortunately mm. um you know there are certain things that we know about the use of private finance which is that uh, private borrowing is always going to be more expensive than government borrowing. So the big question is whether through those routes greater efficiencies can be uh, delivered uh, when building projects than mm. the government would and whether that outweighs the additional cost of capital that will be incurred through private finance. And whether more, more projects uh, Indeed. because of whatever constraints the government might feel there were on finances. But unfortunately okay. the, the, the government has not nearly enough effort into judging what the whole life costs of uh, privately financed projects are versus publicly financed projects and we might be able to do a little bit of that as certainly some of the early PFI projects come back into the public sector mm. at the end of their 25-30 year contracts but actually in order to do it properly you probably need to build in evaluation from the start you need to have comparable projects publicly and privately financed and measure those throughout their lifetime mm. so that you can make a proper assessment and in some cases that will probably require adding kind of greater transparency clauses into our contracts with those finances so that government has access to all of the kind of the data and information mm. that it needs in order to make a proper judgment. I mean by definition when the, when the projects go in, into the private sector it becomes much harder to get all of the information because it is um, in, in, in private contract. Uh, it's something, something we're pushing for here. We do a lot of work on uh, outsourcing and, and so on and have done for years and that uh, call for some of that data will be one of the things you'll hear from us this, this year. You just take us through some of the um, shortcomings uh, and positives of, of cost-benefit analysis as, as, as um, the changes you'd like to see in it. Yes, absolutely. So. Um, I think in, in the report we say that there's kind of international evidence that shows that uh, mega projects, those worth over a billion pounds, um, in 90% of cases tend to run over both in terms of time and their costs. Um, and there's a question of why is that and how do you kind of overcome the optimism bias that um, tends to infect government assessment of how much these projects are going to cost. One of the things that we've called for is um, greater separation of the teams so that those who are promoting projects are not the same people as those evaluating the assumptions that have been made uh, about uh, projections. Um, so in some cases that is already happening. So in the Department for Transport, for example, they have a, a separate team that does that. But actually we think that that might be a role for the IPA, the Infrastructure and Projects Authority, to kind of independently assess the biggest projects um, being promoted. We also think there is a role for the IPA in that kind of collation of evidence. So 
uh, whilst kind of uh, use of private finance is, a, is an evidence-free um, zone, we're also not doing nearly enough to um, evaluate um, the biggest projects or projects full stop. We're not collecting the evidence, we're not collating it, and we're certainly not analysing it and using it to inform um, future um, evaluations or projections for how beneficial projects are going to be, and we think that could be a, a key role for the IPA there in doing that uh, collection and collation. Great, let's have some questions. I've got many more, um, but I suspected, as there are quite a, quite a few here. All right, um, first up was uh, in the front, yep, the, the front row of that. Uh, David Walker from Guardian Public. Um, your report, in many ways, is a sustained critique of the Treasury, isn't it? The Treasury's, <laughs> it doesn't have to be Jacob rees to see that there are great uh, gaps in Treasury capacity, but also an unwillingness on the part of the Treasury historically to allow departments the autonomy themselves uh, I mean, take data. Why is it that the Treasury, which apparently is c in control of spending aggregates, seems curiously uninterested in finding out what's actually happening to public expenditure, measuring it and evaluating it? Any ideas as to why that sort of, that, there's a black hole in terms of interest in data, let alone its collection? It's a, a very good question, as you know perfectly well. Um, Best directed at the Treasury. Um, I, 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 um, we are beginning a project on the Treasury later this year directed precisely at this point of why it doesn't link up, if you like, performance with a spending, but simply issues a spending target. Um, but perhaps both of you would like to chip in on this. Um, I mean, I do wonder whether one of the issues is a willingness to kind of admit when things haven't gone right and to learn from uh, mistakes. I think one of the things that was really important in the report is look is that process of reflection and evaluation of looking at what can we, you know, looking back and learning uh, from projects and looking at back at, at where, where did we get it wrong and how could we make sure that we improve our modelling uh, for the future. I think that's uh, really important and I think, you know, in, in a political context it's sometimes quite difficult uh, to uh, admit where things haven't gone uh, well and to learn the lessons because there's always a tendency to want to kind of put a gloss or a spin on it to explain why you've uh, you know made a new decision or, or changed uh, policy rather than uh, a bit of candor and honesty so I, I think that's part of the uh, problem and it's sort of almost maybe that's a bit inevitable with, with politics but I think we could sometimes do with a bit more uh, transparency so that we can actually be clear about why things have gone uh, are wrong and how we can learn from them and do better. Yeah, just to say, I mean, I, I, I completely agree with you, and it's obviously not just in infrastructure, so our, it's a criticism that our performance tracker report also makes about the um, Treasury's management of expenditure on public services. Um, I suppose you could say that there, there have been some improvements, both the IPA, which I think has been a positive development, and the NIC are both bodies of the Treasury. So while certainly you're right, some of that kind of central expenditure management um, might still not be asking the right questions, there are parts of Treasury that I think are and actually provide some positive hope for the future. A big subject which we could explore for a bit. Um, here and then in the front, and then I'll come further back. Okay, yes. Um, Stephen Joseph, Campaign for Better Transport. Um, how do you think you can solve what the um, Rod Eddington report of 10 years ago identified, which is a tendency to focus on big projects, even though packages of small-scale projects might have better value for money? Um, I, I, I mean, this is a combination of economics, I think. Um, Cost-benefit analysis tends to score small-scale stuff um, worse, but also the, uh, the politics of people liking to cut ribbons on things as opposed to, you know, uh, getting roads better maintained or getting better bus services or something less glamorous. Um, so, uh, I mean, Eddington identified that small-scale projects actually did look better in value for money. How do you think you could, um, uh, we can address that problem um, uh, with, with this? Just to say, by the way, the commission public debate idea I think is great because as a, an environmental group we work with communities who exactly feel that they're being offered, as um, one person put it, a decision on um, never mind the question of whether your community is going to be completely destroyed by a road scheme. The question we want to consult you on is whether the fences should be painted white or green. <laughs> 
Uh, terrific. Uh, um, uh, great question. Uh, let me say we have a very experienced uh, audience uh, here full of practitioners. If people want to make points, I'm departing from the normal chairs and structures. People will make points as well as ask questions. Uh, that, that is uh, uh, all to the good. Nick, Nick do you want to? Sorry, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, I think there is a challenge that some of the things that politicians are most interested in, and indeed that the public are most interested in, are the kind of big transformative changes to the economy, such as increased productivity, you know, rebalancing the economy or increasing jobs. And actually, those types of changes are only really likely to come from the big mega projects which have those transformers. So I can, I can see why there is a desire to look at them, though I agree that there is also a ribbon-cutting bias. I think some of the recommendations that we would make to overcome that, in particular, was one of the reasons why we want uh, a national infrastructure strategy. At the moment, there's kind of very little comparison between different projects and fitting them into kind of clear overall wider objectives. So it's one thing to say HS2 will increase capacity, it will rebalance the economy, etc, etc. But there's very little comparison between HS2 and other transport projects, which might be smaller, and even less comparison between what uh, DFT might be spending and other investments that could be made by DEFRA or Bayes or elsewhere. So I think having a clear strategy would enable a kind of clearer prioritisation and I think that could hopefully lead to kind of prioritisation of some smaller projects. I would also say on the kind of the, the cost-benefit analysis point, some of the um, recommendations that we've made are kind of about greater transparency about the evidence, <coughs> about being clearer what the assumptions are, I think could also help towards that cause. Lillian. Yeah, I mean, I think towards big things in politics. I think that's a really, it's a really important point, and I think there's a huge uh, mismatch actually because you know, I, I certainly in terms of my uh, constituents and what do they get irate about, it is definitely things like the state of uh, our local uh, roads and just coming here this morning, you know, cycling around trying to avoid the uh, potholes. On the one hand, you know, we've got a huge uh, investment in sort of national uh, road and our national road uh, network but then that I mean everybody's journey ends and uh, begins and ends on, on local roads and they're uh, in a mess and I think that is one of the the issues that really concerns me is that is that is how you can kind of make sure uh, that you are looking at the things that are local and um, and really significant to 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 people as well you know in their local communities as well as the sort of transformative uh, things that you can do at a, at a national level. But I do think that cost-benefit analysis can be really important in that because particularly in, um, uh, in the transport field uh, is often it's, it's those uh, interventions that you can make that affect things like cycling and walking that actually have very high uh, levels uh, of BCRs. And, but it's how do you make those uh, comparisons because, you know, we, at national level, there is obviously a, tends to be a focus on the big national projects rather than thinking about what's mm. the best way in which uh, departmental budgets could uh, be implemented to maximise uh, the benefits for everybody. And of course, also there's the sort of silo mentality that we get uh, in departments. And I think one of the, the values of the select committees is increasingly select committees working uh, together uh, to try to Part, in part to actually force government departments to uh, look together at, at shared goals and one of the recent uh, one of those would be uh, around air quality um, and treasury are absolutely pivotal uh, in this as well and making sure that all departments in terms of their planning uh, are focused on common goals and not working at odds in terms of their policy uh, direction. Can I just pick that's up it, yeah. on that kind of collaboration point between um, select committees? Because I agree, I think that's really critically <coughs> important. I think where that a really um, critical time for that is going to be after the publication of the National Infrastructure Assessment um, this summer, which is obviously going to cut across the work of you know at least five or six different um, select committees. So. I, you know, I really hope that the, the kind of the chairs are kind of talking about how they can work together to ensure that kind of the scrutiny is joined up on that. Terrific. Here in the front, and then I'm, I'm coming. There's a cluster of people at the back. I'm coming. You all. We've got, we've got good time. Uh, Caroline Shepherd. I'm the chief adjudicator of the Traffic Penalty Tribunal, and we deal with the penalties for not paying tolls on the Dartford Bridge and the Mersey Gateway Bridge, which is the most fantastic piece of engineering that's recently um, emerged. 
But the, but the, the, the gloriousness of the engineering is completely now overshadowed by the chaos about imposing penalties and tolls and how this has been handled. And so the dissatisfaction in the Northwest about this has completely mm. um, taken over from any respect and admiration for the bridge itself. We also deal with local authorities and sort of shared space um, infrastructure issues that nobody gives any thought to how they're going to enforce them, how they're going to make them fit into the community. Somebody somewhere, probably the Treasury, says that actually people should pay to use them. Obviously this feeds into road pricing, but nobody gives any thought as to how they're going to make that happen. They then, they then hand the, um, the, the, the um, enforcement over to the private sector without any regard to actually the public authority <coughs> approach to this. So then you get the private sector coming in who actually on the, what we see appear to make more out of it actually than the, the government or the, the local authorities because of the way that um, the penalties are imposed. And then, of course, the public just see it as a tax. And, of course, ultimately, it affects the most vulnerable in society because they can't really cope with the processes and land up with the bailiffs knocking on their door. So are you against... I'm just saying it needs to be thought. Then. No, not at all. Well, but I just think it needs, it needs to be it needs to be planned. When you're actually when you're actually designing the infrastructure, doing your cost benefit analysis, deciding on how to finance it, somebody right at that stage needs to be there saying, well, when it's all done and dusted, you know, what is going to be the impact on the local community? And shall we bring the community in to see the extent to which you know, the nurses want to pay going each way to get to work in the morning across a new bridge. All right, Communi community impact, thanks, and the complexity of tolls. Right, um, there's someone right at the back in the window. Um, and I'm coming to all these people in the back now. Okay. Um, Simon Webb um, <coughs> from the Nichols Group. Um, I, I was on Eddington with Rod, so perhaps I could have a go at uh, whatever <laughs> happened to Eddington. Um, I think the lack of a, of a major sort of political event is quite an important issue. But one of the things about Eddington, which, was, which is perhaps a harder thing, was that it was actually very much about demand-driven. So the reason the cost-benefit cases were so good was because there was somewhere where, whether it was a bypass or a small scheme or something, where there was an economic need for it. And so it drove the numbers into the cost-benefit case. But that was about meeting a demand. It wasn't about regeneration, which is what I'm about to get onto, which is to say regeneration is actually you know, the, a topic we haven't really talked about, but is in some ways the, you know, the most dangerous and attractive feature of all this, because the Treasury, of course, are complete, well, I mean, I worked in the Treasury, completely scarred by the, you know, the Northeast, build the roads and they will leave. Um, uh, uh, and don't believe in regeneration, basically. And actually, if you look at the Transport for the North publication <coughs> last week, you might say, you know, there's some of it in there now. You know, it's, it lets, everybody must have a share of this in the North. You know, everybody's got to have something for everybody, you know, even the part. So I think the point about demand-driven is the thing that was in Eddington and is in some ways the hardest because it's not about regeneration. Mm. Thanks. I just want to pick up this, this point of uh, regeneration... Um, Nicolillian, because it's, it's, it's something that doesn't, um, it really is, it has to come down to a political decision, doesn't it? It isn't going to come out of a cost-benefit analysis, which isn't going to say, put more infrastructure in a region that may be uh, very underdeveloped and may be struggling at the moment. The cost-benefit analysis isn't going to say you're going to make a lot of you know, returns on that, is it? You're going to have to take a political decision to, to do that. And it was, it was one of the things we said in our report, actually, cost-benefit analysis is a useful tool to support decision-making, but it's not the be-all and end-all. And as you say, there are kind of fundamentally political questions um, about where we invest, about rebalancing the economy that CBA never suggests it could solve. Um, to be honest, I think CBA gets quite a bad rap. It's a limited tool, but it is a useful one. Um, and, you know, you often hear politicians say, well, if we only relied on CBA, then we'd get nothing done at all. Or you get the converse, which is if you have a high benefit cost ratio, you say, well, this is the single number that justifies going ahead with this project. I don't think either of those is a particularly helpful approach. And there's always going to be a role for political leadership in this. Yeah, I mean, I think... Um 
I think you know, somewhat one of the projects we've been looking at, or one of the issues we've been looking at recently, has been uh, electrification, where there seemed to be a decision, and then there was an attempt to justify it later with the use of uh, benefit cost ratios, where kind of we knew uh, it felt like it had a very high benefit cost ratio, but actually, I think. Uh, DFT kind of worked out that the politics of, of cancelling it weren't going to be that difficult and then they've had to kind of um, yeah. you know post decision kind of try to uh, to justify it I do think uh, I mean cost-benefit analysis is limited and particularly um, because it tends to drive further investment to places that already have investment that have already got mm. high levels of demand and we do mm. if we're serious about rebalancing the economy and trying to regenerate uh, areas in uh, the Midlands and the mm. North then we just do need to make that mm. political decision that we are going to make that investment. We agreed on this in the middle of the back. Thank you. Uh, Hugh Lloyd, a few years ago, perhaps 10 years ago, I was involved in the uh, Planning Act 2008-9 and we created the National Planning Policy Statements. Uh, I wonder whether this and that are part of a story that's got this the wrong way around? Because we've created mechanisms and devices that force or encourage perhaps politicians and departments to concentrate on big things because they become parts of national infrastructure and they need the attention of a department, number 10, HMT, etc. Uh, when actually many people, in a public sense, would say the benefits that they're after are their homes being improved, their roads being improved, their bus services being improved. Uh, and those things, in a sense, are on you Nick because you seem to imply that big things make more difference most people would say small things make more difference you know productivity would be different if everybody in this room could touch type and was trained to touch type before they left school or college that's a very small albeit national thing so maybe we've got this the wrong way around and I wonder were there were there or are there any lessons you might take from neighborhood planning which does engage people at the first point of engagement and puts options in front of them, and which often gets more housing in local areas than a top-down target does, what might we learn from that way around? Okay, thanks. Can we, can we just uh, take up another, hold, hold that thought, uh, another big things versus small things point uh, here in the middle. Hi, uh, Simon Jeffrey from Centre for Cities. Uh, probably building on what Stephen said and a couple of points about you know, political support in areas, just trying to divide that between national infrastructure, and maybe the debate should be you know, if what's going on in Greater Manchester, TFGM should be deciding on the infrastructure projects, seeing as we're sticking on this. Obviously, TfL's got a lot of powers, but it still has to get signed off from Secretary of State, see the, you know, the muddle it's been putting over Crossrail 2 and the sort of impossible financing uh, situation. You know, transport for the north, potential risk of, you know, huge amounts of money being spent on journeys that aren't going to affect the vast majority of journeys in the north, which are people getting in and out of the centre of town or getting across to, you know, school education or anything like that. Is there a place for thinking a bit more uh, almost federally where the national infrastructure is actually delegated down to larger you know city region transport authorities on transport in particular uh, to try and you know square that circle of public engagement smaller uh, schemes having a greater impact as well as people you know feeling like the, the rebalancing is having an impact in their lives that they can see in their city centers or in their commutes every day great let's let's take these two together uh, and then i'm going to start taking them in two there's a lot of hands up um so just on that kind of on the big project point so I, I, the biggest mega projects are more likely to have transformational effects on the economy that's not to say that they're likely to have a higher cba or a higher impact i think it's a it's a, it's a slight it's a slightly different thing on the on the national policy statements so we are relatively uh, critical um, of some national policy statements in that they tend to be uh, quite vague um, with little kind of indication of the kind of the areas of the country that they'll affect and the fact that the members of the public often don't know when a national policy statement is being consulted on that that might mean a high-speed rail line going through their back garden for example which is why what we said with the, the uh, commission, uh, commission for Public Engagement, that we need far greater public involvement in that process, but also it needs to start earlier. So actually, when the National Infrastructure Commission is um, developing its National Infrastructure Assessment, I think to date it's been very good at engaging with kind of professionals. Um, it's perhaps been less good at engaging with the public, so you need greater public engagement at that stage. When that National Infrastructure 
assessment is translated into what we want to see a, a national infrastructure strategy. Again, we think there's a role for the Commission for Public Engagement to run some kind of deliberative workshops with representative groups of the public to help decide between competing options. I think the evidence shows that if the public are supported, if there seems to be political um, support for whatever they're going to say at the end, then actually they can be um, helped and supported to think about kind of complex trade-offs associated with these investments. Then when the national policy statements are being consulted on, we would like the CPE to be identifying those communities that are likely to be affected and engaging them in that consultation process and then again providing support to project sponsors when it goes through the NSIP regime. Going back to uh, onto your point about um, devolution, I think you know part of the problem why central government is so focused on these big projects and why the country is so focused on these big projects, you're absolutely right, is because decision-making on these projects is overly centralised. Uh, and we say in the report that the objective should be to devolve responsibilities and capacity at the same time. So those have to go hand-in-hand, because hand, actually outside of transport for Greater Manchester, outside TfL, actually there just isn't the capacity at the local level to take those on. But that that shouldn't be a barrier. It, you know, it, 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 they, can, they can happen together. And actually, if that did happen, and if the kind of the capacity of those organisations were built, then I think they're probably in a much better place to decide on things like regeneration than someone in Whitehall is. And they can ensure that transport is better connected up with housing developments and with other developments in the local area that are going to be essential for kind of maximising the benefits of those investments. Lillian, is there a tension between what you described of wanting the big political rebalancing, if you like, decision to invest in part of the way and the kind of call for local engagement um, and devolution that we've just heard? Yeah, I think there is, I mean, I think there's definitely a, a place for devolution. Why would you not make the decisions uh, closer to the people uh, that they impact? But I think there's two things to that. One is that devolution by itself doesn't necessarily mean that there's proper local engagement and that people feel an ownership of it. So there's still more uh, to do, uh, you know, as Nick said. Um, and then the other is that, of course, then there'll be, you know, there's a, there's a political decision or a debate about how much money gets devolved to different, uh, to different bodies uh, and areas. So that's still uh, a big question. I do think that the, by, by delegating uh, responsibility and delegating and, and devolving budgets, it does provide an opportunity for more innovation because different places might approach it uh, differently and therefore for potential for, uh, for more learning about, about what works and trying different approaches. So I think that, that you know, there could be real positives uh, around that approach. Okay, great. Let's take another couple uh, over here very patiently on that side, and then I'm coming to the front here. Um, James Kidner from Improbable. We do large-scale simulation and relevant to all this. Um, but I'm picking up a point in your report where you say that the UK consistently make poor decisions compared with some other wealthy countries. And I wanted to know who your sort of exemplary um, <laughs> other states were, bearing in mind we have particular problems in this country because... England's the most crowded country in Europe after Malta. Many, many thanks. And over, over here. Thank you. Julia Chen from the Department for Transport. One of the things that we're grappling with is how decision makers should account for significant uncertainty in the face of technological and other changes. For instance, how the emergence of autonomous vehicles might influence demand for different mm. kinds of transport and the kinds of roads we need. I wondered if you could speak a bit about future-proofing infrastructure decisions um, and whether you looked at that in your report. Many thanks. Two ex excellent questions. Nick, do you want to... Uh, so in terms of um, which countries, um, so uh, we are ranked, I think, a 26th in the world for the for the quality of our infrastructure. So there are there are quite a few countries um, that are that are doing this better than us. In terms of um, specific countries uh, that we name, so we talk about um, France a lot, particularly the their kind of the use of the the CNDP, which has been a really effective way of delivering major infrastructure. It's been a a, a great forum for kind of uh, constructively debating these projects and it's not only kind of reduced public opposition 
but it's also led to improvements in the quality of the projects themselves because project sponsors take on the views of local communities you might have excellent ideas about how to do it better um, another country um, that we cite uh, particularly in relation to uh, how they use private finance uh, we talk about the Netherlands in particular they've got a kind of a much clearer uh, pipeline of um, kind of upcoming projects so um, those who want to invest kind of have a much clearer idea about what's coming up and they can upskill their teams accordingly um, and then just one final one that, that we mentioned I mentioned earlier the kind of splitting of um, project sponsors from those who are kind of assessing and evaluating it and um, so we highlight the example of PMAC from um, South Korea um, which does that very effectively. And the future-proofing question, both of, both, both of you. I mean, I think, I think that's a really, it's a really good, uh, it is a really good question, and I think it is incredibly difficult where you've got um, the potential for effectively disruptive technologies that could be absolutely uh, transformative. I mean, one of the things that the Select Committee um, are wanting uh, to do is, is to look at not just how potentially it could um, something like autonomous vehicles could change the way that uh, we operate but also what's the role of government in shaping the way in which new technologies change uh, the way that societies operate to, to maximize wider benefit rather than um, thinking oh, all new technology uh, is good is actually you know there's a role for government in shaping it but I think from the point of view of trying to um, plan long-term schemes um, when we know that technology is changing really fast and potentially could be transformative that is a real uh, challenge. I don't know what, what Nick's answer would be around that one. I think there's a phrase that predictions are difficult, especially about the future. Um, and I think there's a, there's a problem about how the, the government communicates uncertainty. Obviously, particularly if you're thinking about what's going to happen 10, 20, 30 years down the line, it's incredibly difficult to do that well. But when government tends to talk about what its assumptions are, what it thinks is going to happen, it tends to say, this is definitely what is going to happen. Inevitably, it doesn't end up quite happening like that. And actually, I think if government was clearer about uncertainty, you know, we, we highlight, for example, uh, by OBR and the Bank of England, which kind of uh, show things in kind of visually quite appealing fan charts that show how likely different outcomes are. And I think if government was clearer that these are our assumptions now, but things could change, actually that would make it a lot easier to change their minds further down the line and you'd avoid kind of problems with being locked into projects that no longer seem to make sense. Julia, do you want to say anything about how you do it? Both points that have been, been made, and um, we're working on the future of urban mobility strategy mm. this year to try and set out how it's going to be shaping these technological changes, um, but also yeah. doing internal work on trying to improve the decision making processes so that we at least are getting teams to recognise more the uncertainty that's, that's inherent mm. to a lot of these decisions. Thanks for, thanks for the question. Um, over here towards the wall. Uh, Christine Quigley from GK Strategy. Um, on the point about democratic accountability and the need to kind of balance the, the public benefit and the private impact of major programmes, suppose one of the main ways we've got of doing that on major projects is through hybrid bills, which are sort of long and tortuous and don't come around that often. I was wondering if you had thoughts on maybe how those processes could be improved, or actually is that kind of the least worst option for making some of these decisions? Great, thanks. Let's take one over here. Suddenly, two over here. What, what oh, Penny here? Uh, second from the wall. James Harris from the Royal Town Planning Institute. I was wondering whether your research identified any changes that need to be made to the way that uh, utilities are regulated, because uh, one of the recommendations of the National Infrastructure Commission was that there might be some barriers there in terms of um, the way that utilities are planned and whether they could be changed to better support the delivery of housing. So, any comments on that? Thanks very much. Uh, so on the hybrid bill process, I must say we um, very much focused on the kind of the national policy statement NSIP uh, regime rather than the kind of the hybrid bill process, though we do comment to say that, you know, it's quite archaic uh, and actually in terms of public engagement, you know, you have to put these complex petitions through and actually the kind of the principle of development is normally agreed before the public can actually have their say on it. So we talked a little bit about how the kind of Commission for Public Engagement might facilitate greater public involvement in that process, but definitely I think we would, we would support reform, though we haven't fully explored how that might be done um, properly. Um, 
on the kind of regulation of utilities question, I'm afraid it, it's not something we've really looked at in any great detail. Uh, there will be more work to come on from the Institute on, on that. Yeah, and I'd agree about, yeah. the, about the hybrid bills. It is a really difficult uh, process, and I think it's quite an inaccessible one um, for the public. Quite how we're going to, whether we're going to, whether Parliament's going to look again at that, I, I'm not sure. But certainly, there's a, I think, I think there is a bit of an appetite about about that because we've, you know, haven't <coughs> gone through um, hybrid bill process. Well, we're obviously locked into that now for HS2, so we've got kind of two more to come. It's, um, yeah. Quite hard work. All right, let me see if we can take it. Oh, there's more and more hands going up. We're uh, coming towards the end. Right, there, uh, over towards the fireplace. I'm doing these roughly in the order you've put your hands up um, to the extent I can. Uh, thank you, Richard Barnes, Woodland Trust. Actually, the HS2 Phase 2 petition is looking a lot easier. They've done a much better process, forms easy to fill in, so that's one bit of good news. <laughs> But I was going to ask about the, how you factor in, you talked about evidence and long-term thinking, about the environmental costs, uh, especially in cost-benefit analysis, That's, uh, and also the associated costs such as you know, air quality, health and well-being, uh, particularly in the light of you know, the desire to do infrastructure in a more environmentally sensitive way, and the 25-year plan that asks for environmental net gain. Thank you. Many thanks indeed. Over by the wall here. And I'll try and take a few more as well. Uh, hello, Adam Cooper from the National Infrastructure Commission. Um, thank you very much for the report uh, and for the, the, the kind words you're saying so far about the NIC. Um, uh, and just generally, we would really welcome um, kind of more evidence and ideas and, and creativity in, in infrastructure. Um, and so this, this report's very welcome for us. Um, I guess my question is, uh, again, around kind of devolution and, and local and national projects, but more around the institutions. And in particular, how do you make uh, a national in, uh, institution like one for public debate or uh, even the, the NIC, how do, you, how do you make that relevant um, in all regions of the UK? <coughs> Okay, many thanks. Let me take um, yeah, woman here. Um, my name is Emily Trebas. I work for Dialogue by Design, and we help with sort of independent um, uh, consultation and engagement on national infrastructure projects. And I believe that sort of national infrastructure planning and the approach has always been in terms of engagement to look at issues. Um, to, to make sure that um, developers are having account of uh, all issues raised um, by the public during consultation processes. And I was just wondering if you had any comments on perhaps the, the knock-on um, effect of, sort of public expectation. Um, and now we're seeing in sort of housing and uh, estate regeneration with uh, Sadiq Khan coming out in favour of balloting uh, the public uh, at the end of a process. Uh, just if you have any comments on that. Okay, great. And is there a final one we'll squeeze in? So really at the end, right here, second from the aisle, we'll just get these in. Thank you. My name's Doreen McIntyre. I'm a member of the public who has actually attempted to engage with HS2 for eight years now, including <laughs> the hybrid bill process, the dialogue by design consultations and the rest. My question really is very simple. How much appetite, genuine appetite, is there for a commission for public engagement? As a member of the public, I'm very excited by that, but I would want to know how would it get hardwired into the decision-making processes, the outcomes of that engagement, given that the rest of them Okay, terrific. That's so far. Many thanks indeed, a great question. So we've got the environmental cost, how they take it account of in cost-benefit analysis, uh, more on uh, devolution of the institutions, public expectations, and public engagement. Is it what politicians really need, or is it in fact the last thing they want? Um, Lillian, let me start with you. Um, well, I mean, first of all, the question from the Woodland Trust, and I think it, it's a really uh, interesting uh, point, and certainly in terms of our work uh, as a select committee scrutinising uh, the MPS, that has been one of the areas where we focused a lot of questions about how should we and can we uh, properly monetise impacts on, on the environment, whether it's noise or, or air quality or um, you know or carbon emissions, and I think. Um, I hope it is, a, a, you know, it, that, that the process of going through it is actually going to be uh, helpful because certainly we've focused, I think, hopefully some quite difficult questions um, at, uh, at the Department for Transport. We've got them coming in uh, tomorrow, so we'll see whether we get good answers. But I think um, it has been one of the areas that I think 
requires more work for us to have some certainty around that and we know how important and it's certainly gone up the political agenda particularly uh, issues around air quality so I think there is more focus on, on how we do those things uh, accurately and how we take them into account in making uh, decisions so that's good um, I mean, interesting to hear you kind of have that experience of trying to engage um, with HS2, which I know hasn't always been uh, an easy uh, process, and there's a lot to do uh, to do better. Well, speaking for myself, the idea of a commission of public engagement, I think, is really uh, important, and it goes back to, to the question back there as well, um, is if we're going to make... Um, the National Infrastructure Commission relevant to all uh, parts of the country and relevant to all people and people to feel uh, they have a real say, then I think we need to do much better at communication. It is about trying to um, explain why these things might matter to someone who's sitting um, you know, in their local community and their, in their concerns might be very, very uh, immediate and local uh, to them. So you've got to kind of somehow make the connection between something that feels quite uh, distant but actually will have an impact on them and I think you know that is quite uh, a skill and if the if a commission can find a way to kind of marry up those national uh, decisions that have very broad but dispersed effects um, and what are the concerns of people in their individual uh, you know in their individual lives and find a way to engagement engage them in making choices and feeling that they can exercise some sort of control because I think it's the lack of feeling any sense of control that people find the most difficult uh, then I think that would be hugely uh, valuable and I think the report would be really helpful in starting that conversation uh, but obviously there's quite a lot of work that needs to be done to get mm -hmm. from the concept and the idea uh, to the reality and you know it, it operating effectively uh, on the ground but I think I, I certainly think there's a, there should be a real interest uh, in that and we'll be thinking about how we can take, uh, take that suggestion forward. I mean, we certainly have a strong appetite for the suggestion that we made. Uh, <laughs> and we have to work with um, Lillian and others on, on how we can uh, develop that further. Um, on the kind of environment um, point, you're right, these are some of the concerns, particularly those in local areas that they concern, that they're most interested in. I think one of the things that we point out in the report is the need to incorporate those um, kind of non-monetary impacts into CBAs in a consistent way, which isn't always the case, and also to learn from best practice. So, for example, I suspect that DEFRA might be a bit better at this than other departments. So, you know, where, where they have models that can be used that to, to try and draw on those. Um, on, the, on the public engagement point, I think the, the thing that we found is that the, the public's most interested in kind of the, the sense of fairness, and actually they need to feel that they've had a say kind of as early on as possible before a decision has been made. As the, as the gentleman said earlier, that it's not just about the kind of the colour of the fence, that they're, they're involved in kind of fundamental decisions about what a project looked like or indeed whether there should be a project at all. So I must say I haven't looked in detail at the, the balloting measures, but from what we've looked at, actually engagement earlier will tend to be more effective than kind of signing off things um, at a later date. Um, and finally, in terms of the, the question about how to make um, national um, institutions relevant to the local. So as, as I said earlier, I think a, a part of that is about devolving further powers um, to, to, the, to the regional and to, to the sub-regional, and indeed in developing national plans that actually the views of those sub-national bodies should be taken very, very seriously indeed, and actually it should be more of a kind of a partnership approach. So for example, in future years, I would think that um, the work of Transport for the North and Transport for Greater Manchester should be heavily, heavily influencing whatever it is that the National Infrastructure Commission then says should happen at a national level and part of the role should be to kind of connect up the patchwork of, of local plans rather than to kind of be imposing a, a single national vision in areas where they've already developed their own ideas and perhaps have already engaged the public on those. Thanks for that. We're going to have to draw to a close now. This has been fascinating. Um, inevitably quite uh, focused on transport with a bit of housing rather than perhaps uh, energy or, or, or digital. And because of that, we've heard a lot about uh, public engagement and institutions. And, and thank you. I've taken uh, much uh, support for our, our idea um, uh, from this discussion um, to be continued uh, and also on our part to be continued on the um, 
the finance questions, which we haven't dug into quite so deeply in this particular discussion, but about you know, the public versus private, does it make a difference? When, when is which one better? I can put it that way. Uh, something that we will be looking at in all kinds of contexts later this year. Um, and for those of you particularly interested in this question of our independence of institutions, we have Robert Choate, chair of the OBR, here at lunchtime today and in conversation with me. Uh, do watch on our live stream if you're not coming. With that, can I thank again uh, the Project Management Institute, Lillian, Nick, and the terrific IFG team. Thank you.